Welcome to the Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Today's guest on the podcast is Paul Barron. He founded The Wall Printer Company. As the name implies, it's a printer that can print large format images on any flat surface. By large format, I mean like five feet by eight feet. Wow, Bela, that sounds pretty cool. I can think of a few spots that'd be fun to paint stuff on the walls around here, but um, you know, that's neither here nor there. It sounds interesting. Um, and it sounds like this is a very interesting person with a long and rich history in entrepreneurship. I did a little bit of peeking um, on the on the interwebs, but uh, let's get right to it. Let's get to your interview with Paul Barron. Sounds good, Mike. Hey, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Bela, nice to be here with you and your audience. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. So uh, let me ask you a question to start things off. If you're at a social event, uh, a non-work-related social event, and you get introduced to somebody, and after the introduction, they say to you, very nice to meet you, Paul, what do you do? How do you reply to that question? Well, um, I, how do you do? And then I'll respond with, um, I create business opportunities for people by launching innovative products. Okay, and then let's let's unlayer that onion one more layer. So what does that mean, Paul? Well, if they haven't walked away and they have some kind of an interest, as you've just expressed, then I'll stick around and go further deeper into it. Um, and basically, I've spent a lifetime finding innovative products, generally from foreign countries, meaning foreign to the U.S. Um, no disrespect to your audience that might not be American or Canadian or South American, which are all the markets I service out of Wilmington, North Carolina, with this business and prior businesses. Um, but what I do is I find innovative products Excellent. that have some type of a market gap. It might be that the companies with these products or services um, have not identified the right customers or the right partners mm. or a strategic investors. And they want to position themselves either for revenue growth by marketing and selling the products or by finding partnerships, vendors, uh, manufacturing sources whatever they wanted to do to enter into the North American, South American markets, that's where I come in and where I can be of service. Generally, yeah. I've done this for a lifetime, well, lifetime, for the past three or four decades. I've done this as a hired gun for companies. I've also owned my own businesses in and out. I've had my own entrepreneurial experiences, everything from software development to consumer packaged goods to um, uh various uh, to restaurants. I was in the restaurant business for 12 years, um, sporting goods stores, retail. Um, so I've done a lot of things on my own, um, launch companies. I've had my successes. I've had my learning experiences, which I like to call those that are not quite the financial success you dream about, um, but learning experiences and always moving forward with something else. But I found this niche in being able to articulate the value of products and services and identifying the right audience for that. And so I've done that for about the past three decades. But as I mentioned, as a hired gun, meaning a commissioned yeah. salesperson. And I always want to own my own company. I guess that's the entrepreneur in me. I really want the control. I find something lacking in the product and I want to maybe develop it differently. I want to maybe add something to it or I just want additional control over the potential success that sure. I feel I can bring to the party. So um, I retired several times over the years. Um, I know I only look 20, but I'm 71 years old, um, so I don't have a lot of these runs left in me, um, but I'm always looking around. And generally, I'll be in my home office. Um, right now, I'm in my office office for the wall printer, my current venture. Um, but 
uh, generally I'm in my home office and I yell to my wife and I say, hey, Maureen, come take a look at this. Well, invariably, rather than come into my office to take a look at it in my home, she'll cut up my credit cards and hide the bank account uh, because she thinks, <laughs> she thinks, oh, here we go. Paul's going to invest in something crazy again. Um, this time she took a look and she was all in. And what I mean, she took a look. This time there was, again, I was retired at the time, but I found this product, which actually I was introduced to it by one of my now competitors, a German company. And again, no disrespect to anybody in your audience that has German heritage. I drive a BMW. I cook with Henkel knives, which I think are the best in the world. Um, I value a well-engineered product. But just because something says made in Germany or, in fact, made in the USA does not mean de facto it is worth twice what something else of comparable value and features um, might be worth. So I did my homework. I found out that this German product was lacking. It was a $70,000 retail product, which I didn't know whether that was high or low because it was a vertical printing machine that would put digital art onto any wall, indoors or outdoors, kind of like your desktop printer, but on steroids and printing vertically on a wall. Thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And while I fancy myself to be a somewhat of an informed consumer, I've never seen anything like this before. And so I wanted to know why not. Also during the process of this courtship with this German manufactured product, I learned that they wanted me also as a commission salesperson. There was no opportunity for me to buy into the company to have an equity component. So I really wasn't interested in it, but I loved the product. So all my conversations broke down with that company. I did my homework, something anybody should do who's getting involved in whether it's your own creative idea or whether something's thrown at you like this was. Um, and I decided, well, who else is doing this? Why haven't I seen anything like this before? So uh, during my due diligence, I found, learned that there were a handful, literally five companies in the world that manufactured this type of a machine, none of which were in the United States or in the Western Hemisphere at all. They were all confined to the German product. There were two in China. The originator of the technology was one of the two Chinese companies. I also learned, which I've known for many, many years, the Chinese don't only copy us, they copy themselves when they see something of value and interesting. And so right. there was one company that was the originator of the technology about 15 years in the business, excuse me, in the business with about 500 customers at the time. The other Chinese company was a new entrant in trying to copy the product that the other one had, but they weren't a printing company and had no R&D, no engineering expertise, no support for customers. So I kind of ruled them out. There was an Indian company, had a little solution that was a home hobby solution, not designed for commercial enterprise. My dream for a product is always to see what value it has to put other people into business using this product or what value it has for an existing business to use the product so that they can make money in it and have it to be reliable day in and day out and that the Indian product did not qualify for that. And then there was an Australian company. They had a beautiful website, which is how I found them, but they had no product. There was a venture-backed company that lost their funding early on and never even had any product. So it really boiled down to the one Chinese company, the originator. So we began our courtship and we developed a relationship a year in the making while I did my research to find out, do people really like this? Do those 500 customers they have, are they making money? Are there customers that I envision for this product in the United States? Can they make money doing this? Um, and, and we went through a year of, of getting to know one another until the point that I decided to make a big investment in the company. Um, I co-own three patents with the company today, fast forwarding wow. a little bit. 
um, which is unusual, by the way, for an American company to co-own patents with a Chinese company. And the only reason I mention that is not to pat myself on the back as being some somebody who others could not do this, but it speaks to the relationship we developed, that they were confident that I could do what I said I would do, and mm -hmm. I was confident they could deliver on what they promised. And so with that, we've developed the relationship. Fast forward now, this was 2019 that I'm talking about. Got my first shipment of machines in 2019 in December. January of 2020, the world stopped with the pandemic. <laughs> So there I was, not necessarily the smartest kid on the block, with my wife and a lot of I told you so's from people um, that said, here you are with something that nobody's ever seen or heard about before, and nobody can come and see it. And nobody knows, yeah. it. it wasn't like, it wasn't like uh, buying a hamburger or a pizza place or a plumbing business or even being a lawyer or a doctor. This wasn't anything anybody right. can compare to. So, <clears throat> but I was all in and I loved the product. And so while everybody was laying people off, I was hiring people. I hired uh, my support team. I hired my sales team. I hired, most important, my social media marketing team, because that's what I was going to do when people could not travel around to introduce this with video and postings on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and our website and letting people see what this was all about and finding out who might want this and figuring out who our customers were. So I spent several months doing that until August of 2020, we made our first sale. Fast forward now from then to now, May of 2023, we've got 120 machines sold to 102 customers as of today. Uh, we're selling about one to two new businesses and territories with these machines. Um, and it's been a very, very successful journey for not only my business, but for the businesses we're creating, which is the real mission that we have here, is to create business opportunities for other people to realize their hopes and dreams and find some something fun, beautiful, reliable, that they could put their stake in the sand in their community and develop a nice, profitable business. Yeah, very nice. So since this is a product that's not familiar to a lot of people, can you describe it a little bit, how it's used and what the typical applications are? So <clears throat> I will say that if anybody was really interested in the answer to that question, which I'll do the best I can to give you a visual um, and descriptive answer, but 15 to 30 seconds on our website, thewallprinter.com. Yeah. And again, this is not a pitch for the wall printer, but just to answer your question of what this machine is, 15 to 30 seconds to see a video of it in action would tell you everything you need to know about this business and about, well, not necessarily about the business, but about the machinery. But to answer your question, so your audience hopefully has some video. And so there's a picture behind me that's a five foot by eight foot mural. My office staff wasn't nice enough to give me a window in my office, so I had to wall paint one. So a wall printer is a vertical printing machine. It is literally a machine that, as opposed to your desktop printer that prints on paper or, or prints pictures um, and will print on an eight and a half by 11 or an 11 by 14 piece of paper um, in a self-contained unit. This is a machine that has a print head that goes up and down an eight foot vertical rail or with an extension, which we provide up to an 11 foot vertical rail when your standard US ceiling is not an obstacle. So, or you're printing outdoors where height is generally sure. not an obstacle. Um, and it goes up and down printing, drying instantly with a UV heat lamp that dries our what's called UV inks, which are kind of an oil-based inks that gives a nice vibrant color. Um, it prints on any surface. This on my wall here is concrete, 
Um, my warehouse here in Wilmington, North Carolina is made of cinder block, like many warehouses are. Um, but if it was metal or glass or wood or wallboard, like your home generally has walls, it'll print on that too. Brick, wood, tile, anything. It'll print on any surface, indoors or outdoors. Outdoors, the inks last two to three years. Indoors, 12 to 15 years. Generally, people will get bored with it before the image fades. Um, and then there's a new job to be done. But generally, it prints a reliable, quick image. This image took two hours, five feet by eight feet. It prints at 20 square feet per hour. So this five by eight took two hours to print. It would take an artist at least two days, and they wouldn't get yeah. the kind of detail that you get here. Um, it is what we call near photo quality. It's not what your $150,000 flatbed printers that are the traditional tools of the printing and signage business. Um, it is not that kind of quality, but as opposed to that German product that approached me first for $70,000 for a unit, our $30,000 unit, which is our retail price for our unit to actually a wholesale price to our customers. Um, it prints at 1440 or 2880 DPI, which is as good a resolution as you need to have to have a really good artistic reproduction. Um, and, it, and you could use all printers for signage too. It'll print fine text. We've had customers use it in museums to print the description of a sculpture or a painting on the wall. So, or a menu on a restaurant on their glass door or hours of operation. Um, that Very hopefully nice. gives you a feeling for the printer. But again, nothing yeah. replaces a video of seeing it in action. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll make sure that uh, wallprinter.com information is in the show notes. Thank you. Uh, so the let me ask you. Thewallprinter.com. Yep, thank you. So let me ask you a question. So in the past, I've, I have used and seen, uh, you know, you can hire a company and, and they will in essence take an image and create it for you. On, on fundamentally what I would call to be like wallpaper it comes in sheets and then the image is aligned next to each other and you have an image. What are some of the advantages of, of the wall printer versus the, I'll, I'll say, I'll use the word traditional ways of doing this? So a great question. From a course perspective, the short answer is no difference. To have a professionally installed wallpaper or vinyl sticker put onto a yeah. wall is a no cost savings um, of doing a wall printing. So that I will say. I will also say that for the life of me, I can't put the screen protector on my phone without getting bubbles in it and everything else. How yeah. those people professionally install an eight foot by 10 foot or bigger vinyl sticker or wallpaper and get those seams to line up perfectly and to get no bubbles in it or anything. Um, that's, a, I mean, and they do, um, but it takes a lot of time and it takes labor, which again equalizes the cost differential between painting on a wall. And then of course you have an artist who could do a mural too. An artist will charge sure. two to three times what we charge and take five to 10 times longer than our machine will take. But these are, there are alternatives. And then of course you've got your traditional hang a poster frame picture or something. So, you know, I, I look at this like, this is just another way to do something, to put art onto walls. Um, but the examples you gave, and then there are things the wallpaper, the wall printer is not. We don't do vehicle wraps. You have to go to a signage shop and get vinyl stickers to wrap a car with some types of graphics. We don't do curved surfaces. We don't go edge to edge. So if a customer really wants something to fill up an mm. entire wall, then you're either going to have to get an artist to embellish around our wall print because the limitations of our machine are such that you need about 12 to 13 inches all around it before you hit some type of an obstruction. It doesn't go around things or right to the edges. So there right. are differences. The wall printer is wall art. 
you want to put wall art. And again, even though I did say you could use it for signage, which you can, and you can print on canvas or vinyl stickers. A lot of our customers, especially the early ones when the pandemic was still in full blast, um, they couldn't go to, into restaurants or people's homes with these machines. So they printed on pieces of metal or canvas or vinyl, and they actually created images that they shipped to people and they, yeah. they sold on Etsy or things like that. So the, it, it offers a lot of flexibility to people that these other Got solutions it. just don't. Got it. So let me talk a little bit. Let me ask you a little bit about uh, distribution. So you you have, uh, I assume, with the Chinese company, you have an exclusive territory, some geographic territory for selling these products. Correct. We own the entire Western Hemisphere. We are the oh, only. Very nice. You, if you want this machine, you can only get it from us. If you live anywhere from Canada, the United States, Central South America, Mexico, Caribbean. Okay. So one of the challenges I think for entrepreneurs is when they have a product and introduce a product. Uh, particularly something that you know they can't put in a small box and ship via UPS or that someone can't download. You got to think about distribution. You got to think about service. You got to think about all those types of things. So how do you how did you decide how to distribute this product? So Bela, um, great question. And um, all those elements are critical to the success of any business. Um, you need to be able to not only identify those customers, which was my root skill set. Um, but also to be able to service and support them. So the first thing I did, as I mentioned earlier, was started to hire people in those respective teams, not only the social media and marketing team to go ahead and find out who wants this and introduce the technology to my audience in the Western Hemisphere, but to build up the support team, to convert all the Chinese language to English, Spanish, Portuguese, French Canadian, which mm -hmm. were the services that mm -hmm. we provided. Also to find out yeah. what do I need to source locally? There are American components now in our machine, which are better sourced here and assembled here by me. The machine manufacturing, Chinese do that better and less expensive than anyone else. So we continue to have the machines manufactured there. But again, speaking to the relationship between me and the manufacturer, we have the ability to build those machines here if I wanted to. And today we actually manufacture our own inks. Um, we have, I have two factories, one in Kansas, one in Florida, that manufacture inks to the machine specifications. Um, which people source from us. We get some American components specifically on the computer and electrical components that come with these machines that are required for the operation. Um, the software is proprietary um, and uh, that we, we manufacture. There is a software application that is a very generic one for the printing actual printing application for actually importing that image on a USB stick and simply putting it onto the wall then and telling it what size to print at. Uh, but all of those elements in terms of distribution, um, once you've identified the customer who wants this, you have to be able to service and support them. You have to have the supply chain. So we spent 10 months from, you know, up until we got our first customer, um, I mean, building up all of those infrastructure, logistics, resources, um, the carriers to bring, these machines are 125 pounds, but they come in a 440 pound crate. Um, it's a large crate, it weighs 200 kilograms, 440 pounds. So you, all of that has to be managed also. And on the receiving end, people have to know what they're getting. They're not getting a desktop printer in a box that they can just open up. Right. So there's, right. there's training. That's the biggest component initially for a customer is how do I get trained on how to use this? Even though our training takes about three to four hours, no more than that, and we can do it remotely via Zoom or Skype, like we're having this conversation, um, we, can, we can log in. We can also log into the machines remotely to service and support them. We, can, uh, we don't have to send a somebody out there to somebody's home. We can go ahead and diagnose 
95% of the problems as long as they have internet access. And I don't know a business yeah. that doesn't. Um, and we yeah, can yeah. figure out what the problems are. So let, let me ask you, as you're describing all these various different uh, tasks that need to be done, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, some of those you can say, okay, I'm going to hire the people and we're going to do that directly with our employees. It's going to be our company's staff that does that. Or you can say, I'm going to hire outside individuals to do that, either, you know, sales reps or subcontractors, or there's, there's companies in the business of servicing equipment that right. you can contract with. How did you make that decision on whether you kind of keep it inside the business or whether you're going to, you know, sublet, I'll say, out to other organizations to provide that service? Well, first off, we are no different in our business or any business in terms of that kind of decision. What, what do you build versus buy? Um, and so that's what I call it, build versus buy. Um, what, are you, what are you going to do in-house? What are you going to hire somebody to do? Everything from the accounting that a business needs. You know, right. I, have a fraction, right. I have a fractional CFO for my, for my financial. Um, I don't have a, a CFO on staff. I have a bookkeeper um, who, is, who is hired outside. I have a, a webmaster who is a, a, who's an external resource. And our customers too. There are opportunities for them to make money with graphics design. Somebody comes to them with a picture on a cocktail napkin and they say, I yes. want this picture, uh, I got this idea. Or I took a great picture on my phone of my dog and I want that to be six feet by eight foot in my den. Um, you know, and, and it, a picture that you take on your phone looks great on your computer or your phone, but try to blow that up to six feet by eight foot, it's gonna look like garbage. And so that requires some graphics expertise. Well, that we don't provide. We provide the tools and the direction for that, but they need to have somebody local to do that. And these people are readily available in most communities, um, people who provide those types of services. And that's something that if our customers don't have those skill sets themselves, they should go ahead and outsource and have somebody available for when those opportunities come by, because that's extra revenue for them. Uh, but as far as it goes, you know, I'm a control freak. So I wanted to have the the sales i wanted to have the support i wanted to have the yeah. marketing all of that those elements i wanted in-house and to control to give the best quality and reliability of service level to my customers um but some yeah. of these other extra things like the financial aspects of the business and the bookkeeping and the uh, the web design and things like that i outsource that to people <clears throat> who are not only more Got qualified it. than anybody i could hire but i didn't need somebody full-time to do that and that yeah. same logic passes down to my customers. Makes sense. Makes sense. So <clears throat> you had mentioned, I want to, I want to go a little broader now. You had, you had mentioned that you've had many years of, uh, uh, uh selling products that have done a bunch of different things. So one of the things I'd like to ask you a little bit about, because I think our entrepreneurial audience, uh, is interested in this is opportunity recognition. So when you look at something, What's sort of the thought process that goes through your mind to say that, yes, I want to I want to investigate this further and I want to possibly run with this opportunity uh, versus you looked at this product and you go, nah, I don't I don't think that's one. That's one I should pursue further. What's that? What's that process like for you? So, again, really, really great question, Bela, and uh, one that any entrepreneur or anybody wanting or thinking about starting a business or even taking a job with a company has to go through that, that discovery or intellectual exercise of what is the problem that this is a solution to. If you don't have a solution to a real problem, 
You can't make up a product or develop technology or identify um, some type of a service or product that is going to um, require you to create a vision of a problem for it to be the solution. There has to be a real market gap. There has to be a reason for it. In the past, I've represented a, um, an innovative baby bottle that was manufactured in Austria uh, because it, it, it helped mothers and fathers with their transitioning from going from breastfeeding to bottle feeding. Um, and it was an innovative design that more closely mimicked the mother's breast. Um, yeah. And, and that, that to me, even though there were hundreds of ways that you can buy a baby bottle, this was different. It was unique. And so I thought that there was a market for that, and I hope that company identified that market and the strategic relationships it needed to bring that product here into the United States. Same thing for a self-service dog wash system from Australia that I imported and helped develop in pet stores and community dog parks and car washes, places people go to with their dogs. And uh, and it was a, a, a dog. Now, there are plenty of ways you can wash your dog. You can yeah. go ahead and wash your dog in your bathtub and shower at home and, of course, create havoc um, all over the place. Or you can go to a groomer and spend quite a bit of money to do that, as I know with my dogs. Um, or you can go ahead and use this machine that was a credit card kind of vending machine, $10 for 10 minutes that you can wash your dog, which I found, again, had a price point and a solution to a very real problem that people might have. And there was enough opportunity in the market for somebody to provide this type of service. So that type of, you know, what problem are you solving? That has to be yeah. the first thing that any entrepreneur thinks about before going through the exercise of, is this the product I want? Is this the service? Is this the technology I want to develop? Is this the app I want to create to sell a million of them on the ice, uh, the Apple store or something? Um, so right. that's that's how I answer that. Very nice. So uh, how do you, how do you sort of find these opportunities? Do you go to trade shows? Do you do your you know how how do you how do you come across them and find them? Well, everything in life, I believe, my own personal experiences as well, is rooted in networking. And yes, you can go to trade shows. You can do Google searches. You could let things find you because of your tastes. Google and Facebook and all these other social media outlets, uh, Instagram, others. Um, understand your likes, and unless you've excluded them from your inbox or your stream, so to speak, um, you will be presented with ads and opportunities all the time. The question is, which ones do you take? Which ones do you follow through with? Which ones do you want to explore further? Um, but networking, um, yeah, trade shows. There are plenty of trade shows for products and services. Um, there are local startup. I, I am a mentor at the local university, University of North Carolina here in Wilmington, has what's called a CIE, which is the acronym for Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Every community, I won't say every community, but most urban areas and metropolitan areas will have some type of startup community, um, incubators, a place where people can find resources for people like me who wear the sales and marketing hats, to lawyers, to financial advisors, to people who have just been there, done that in various industries, whether it be fishing, whether it be um, software development, whether it be patent requirements, whatever, you could find a lot of resources. And so we have that, such a center here in Wilmington, and I'm a mentor, and we entertain ideas from people who are either students or faculty or people who have existing businesses that either have pain points in their current venture or have ideas for something brand new. 
and they run it by us. You know, it's called a pitch. Sure. Um, they go ahead and they, they present that idea. And if people, one or more, see merits in it, they may say, raise their hand and volunteer and say, <laughs> yeah. I'll help them get to the next step and, and create that idea a little bit better, bake it a little bit more and see if it has legs to it. Um, but ultimately, you know, just talking to people, um, just finding your own space. I worked for many companies in my journey as well. And what happened is I started with a company uh, right out of college um, where I earned some money um, to support the good graces of my parents that paid the bulk of my college education. Um, but for my spending money, which they did not support too well, um, I went and I strung tennis rackets for the local athletic department at the university. Well, I developed a pretty good skill for that. And uh, my current body makeup notwithstanding, I'm still a pretty good tennis player, uh, very, very competitive 50 years later. Um, but back then in college, when I was 20, 21 years old, um, and I graduated college, even though I took a job teaching, which is what I did as my first career choice, um, I also opened up a tennis sporting goods store um, because I, I really found a following to my tennis stringing. And I opened up a sporting goods store to, to see what that was like with a friend. And that began my entrepreneurial journey, built that to three stores, sold out to my partner, ended up leaving teaching going into another type of a venture as an employee for a manufacturing and distribution company in the jewelry business, because all along it was this kind of step ladder approach to learning as much as I could learn and either succeeding or failing with a business that I created out of some passion I had at the time, uh, which varied across many industries and products and services. Um, but then I would go to work for somebody to try to understand what I didn't know because I knew there was a lot that I didn't know. So I worked for companies that maybe had the resources and the talent and gave me the networking opportunities to learn those things I did not know about, whether it be marketing, product development, legal, accounting, yeah. um, team building, whatever. Um, and then I would go back and I would find something else that it got my fancy and I would explore that. And uh, that's, that's how my journey happens. Excellent, <clears throat> excellent. Well, Paul, I really, really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, you really shared some great thoughts and ideas with us. Uh, is there anything that I have not asked you that you'd like to share with our audience? I'm sure there's hundreds of things that you haven't asked me. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, but again, on that last point, um, it's really all about who you know. You know, be nice to the people on the way up. They're the same people you're going to see on the way down. Um, you yeah. know, it's it's not, you know, there's the old saying, I, I, I don't really fancy trite phrases at all, but it's not how many times you fall down. It's how many you get up. Um, and uh, and I'm always happy to network with people. If people want to learn yeah. more about the wall printer and the technology that I'm marketing and creating business opportunities for others who want to be in this business um, with their own wall printing machines. And we also have floor printing machines now too, which is something I developed over the past three years with the manufacturer. We print on floors as well as walls. But if somebody's yeah. interested in the specifics, they can go to thewallprinter.com and learn more and contact us that way. If they'd like to talk to me and maybe come up with those questions that you haven't asked um, and have an interest in networking with me, not an advertisement for LinkedIn, but it's a good professional network. It's a good way to connect yep. with people. And that's also a good way to go and explore ideas that other people have and businesses that other people are doing and groups that are there. And uh, whether it be just something entrepreneurial or startups or whether it be very, very specific industry sectors. So if somebody wants to connect with me on LinkedIn, they can find me there. And I'm happy to do that and have conversations with people. Great, <clears throat> great. Very gracious of you to make that offer, Paul. I appreciate it very much. 
Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure, Baylor. I appreciate that as well. Yeah, Bella, what a character. This is great, right? I loved his personal story, and it was interesting to hear about his latest product and this whole kind of business model of getting a, a territory and a distributorship from the manufacturer in China and rolling this thing out to people who wanted their walls printed all over the Western Hemisphere. What are your thoughts on this business model, Bela? Yeah, so I think the business model is well-proven, right? There's this, this sort of get a territory, uh, from some manufacturer in another country, lock lock it out so you're the sole distributor in, in in your country. And then the question is, to me, the question always is, with a business like this, do you do fact, basically, you own all of the, the, the other installers, if you will, around the country, or do you try a franchise model? Or do you do independent sales organizations or distributors or sub-distributors? That to me is always the dilemma, and I don't know what the right way is or the wrong way is to do this kind of stuff, uh, but those are kind of the three sort of proven models. Do you have any experience with with sort of these various different models, Mike? Not so much, Bela. I mean, you know, the idea of getting a territory is a lot like a franchise model in a lot of cases, and I've had experience with that and, and with working with people that do that, and you have your territory. Um, but when you have, it's one thing when you have like, you know, 25 square miles in a city somewhere, right? Like in the, in the car business, right? Your, your car dealer right. has a, a small territory and there's still lots of competition. This is a little bit different when you have, you know, not only a whole country, uh, but a whole sets of countries. And this is a little more of a big scale model um, for me. And you, you, you know, on one hand, it's pretty cool because you don't have a lot of competition, but on the other hand, you got to do a lot of selling yourself and you really got to reach yeah. those customers. You don't have the benefit of several different um, opportunities, right? Where people are getting the message about the brand or the product. It's all on your shoulder. So I think like it, like you said, kind of there's strengths and weaknesses to all models, but this can be really nice and it's exclusive, but because of exclu it's exclusive, it can also have a lot of resource demands and, and, and be tough in a lot of ways. Sometimes, you know, you want to avoid a lot of competition, but sometimes having you know, other people that you're working with in a, in a, in a country or in a region, um, can actually be helpful rather than harmful. So it's an interesting yeah. approach. What do you think? Yeah. So I, I think that the challenge is in any of these type of relationships is, and I, and I've been in a few distributor relationships in the past where we've hired people to distribute our products in a, in a geography and a distributor can fire you before you even realize it. Mm -hmm. Right. So making sure what I mean by that is they'll just stop selling, stop selling. Right. And, and now you're locked in with that distributor. So, so from that perspective, they have that leverage, right? They, they can stop selling and you, it's difficult for you to fire them. And, and that means you can't go get a new distributor until that distributor agreement expires or somehow you've negotiated. You pay to break some, it. Right. A lot of times to break it. you pay to break it. Right. Yeah. So I think the important thing, regardless of how you set this up, whether it's a franchise or whether it's a distributor or whether you're doing it, you got to make sure the agreement's balanced, right? So, so that one person can't take advantage of the other, right? Because the distributor worries about, hey, you're just going to keep racking up the prices and then all of a sudden, you know, I, I can't sell the product anymore because no one wants to buy it. And now I'm burdened with servicing these things and all the inventory requirements, et cetera. So you got to make sure these agreements are balanced. And I think that's the biggest challenge is, is making sure that it's working and it's working well, which probably means you need to revisit it 
periodically because how you sort of set it up on day one may not be the best way for it to be a year or two or three later. Um, so I, that to me, I think, is the most important thing in all of these sort of distributor agreements. Yeah. And, it, you know, this is a point that we made really um, regularly in the kind of the earlier days of the podcast. And we haven't talked about this lately, Bela, but this is another great example where having a really good lawyer that knows this yeah. kind of part of, of business is really important because you have to have a couple of things. One is you have to have aligned incentives so that it's create, you're creating win-wins and the contract has to be structured so that both people are rewarded for moving it, working in the same direction. And then the second thing is if you wanna get out of it, if it doesn't work, you have to have clear steps um, for, for kind of the breakup, right? So you have to yep. not only plan on the best of times, but you also have to plan on the worst of times and that needs to be contained in this contract. And we've had lawyers on the, on the podcast before talk about some of these things in different contexts, but I think this is a thing where any of the listeners are thinking, oh, this sounds great, let me do this make sure you have a good seasoned lawyer review the contract right. um, to find so, some of these sticking points. Yeah, a, a lawyer who's done lots of these types of contracts. So right. they understand the the subtleties and, and the places that can pr provide friction for either party going forward in the future. Yeah, and we go back to this again and again. A lot of entrepreneurs or small business people are really afraid of lawyers and don't trust lawyers a lot. And they say, oh, it's an expense. I can jump on the internet and download a template and do it myself. And you and I both are in total agreement on this, is that spending some money on a lawyer up front is one of the best investments you can make yeah. in terms of really paying for itself again and again and again in the long run as your business grows and develops. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you another question, Mike. What do you think about sort of market opportunity and opportunity recognition kind of with the wall wall printer, right? Is is this a, what's your hunch? Is this a market that's going to take off? Is it really super niche? You know, what, what are your thoughts? You know, it sounds to me like a niche business, but you know, there's a lot of blank walls in the world, you know, and there's, um, I don't think it's what people think initially how to do it, but you know, mm. we've had. Um, I see here at the university, there's some places where we've done some some printing on walls and things like this. Um, physical space is important again, post COVID and people wanna make it look good. People wanna share information. People wanna put design elements into spaces where maybe it wasn't so important before. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't, this wouldn't jump out of me if you asked me what are my top 10 market opportunities right now, this wouldn't be there. Um, but you know, I'm not that close to the business and this is where a guy yeah. like Paul has made his whole career, right. Of kind of finding these niches that he can grow a little bit where there's not a lot of competition and you know, that's, there's always a risk, right. And I loved how he joked about, oh, my wife, you know, tear up the credit cards and everything, right. This is kind of funny, but you know, it's like, okay, you find a niche that has some potential and not a lot of competition and you take a risk. So, yeah. you know, I guess that's my answer is I'm not saying it isn't a niche that clearly he thinks it is and he's done more homework on it than I have, but it isn't what would jump out at me is kind of this is a hot area, but sometimes those are the cool areas to be in, right? And that sometimes not hot being is cool, if that makes sense, right? Because right. if it, you're in the hot areas, there's lots of competition, lots of froth. If you're in a, a niche that's maybe a little bit under the radar, <coughs> but it's got solid you know, kind of fundamentals and there's the potential yeah. to grow it and you don't have a lot of competition, why not take a risk, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I was thinking about this. I've seen these murals on walls that are sort of done like wallpaper. So it's it's different sh pages or sheets that have to be aligned yeah, it together. It comes in rolls. Yep. And it comes in rolls. And the ones I've seen look pretty crappy. I mean, 
from 15, 20 feet away, they look fine, but you get up relatively close and it looks like wallpaper, right? Sure. There's seams yeah. and joints. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking that, you know, this could be really creatively done with, with sort of any image you wanted. And even for the home, I was thinking, right? I mean, there's, mm -hmm. there's these cycles you go through. I remember some of our houses in the past, you know, when wallpaper was really popular, <laughs> you know, every room in our house was wallpapered by Elaine and I. <laughs> so, uh, and I was thinking this stuff would be, this would be super great because you could get a pattern, you could come in, you could do the wall, there wouldn't be any seams and, and, it, mm -hmm. and it wouldn't add to the thickness of the wall like wallpaper does, right? You want to redo wallpaper or you, now you want to paint, paint it, you got to strip it off the wall. I just it's thought hard. from that perspective, it, it had some great, pretty good advantages from a market yeah, opportunity. Yeah, they could bring it to your house, you set it up, and yeah. you paint over what's on there with a primer and a top coat. Right. And if you can do the whole thing in a couple of, you know, in half a day, it makes a ton of sense. Right. You don't need to get a paintbrush and you don't need to put stuff down. You don't need to clean up the spatters, right? I'm sure this thing can even go around windows, no problem, right? Right. So, you know, I, I think there's something to it there. But, you know, then the other interesting thing is at some point it's like 3D printing, right? So what can you do structurally? And can you print solar cells on windows or on the side of a house? You know, there's a lot of other things is once you people trust you to come and bring a device like this into your business or your home, you know, what other opportunities are there downstream? So, you know, maybe there is some growth opportunities here as well as once you saturated the market for, for you know, pr printing murals on walls. Yeah. Um, you know, what else can you lay down? Whiteboards, chalkboards, you can get the whiteboard paint and the chalkboard paint and, right, things like this. So, you know, maybe there's more to it in terms of specialty coatings. Yeah. Um, you know? Yeah. Know. So anyway, I thought it was a neat conversation. He was a, a very interesting guy. I, I enjoyed my discussion with him. Yeah. You know, the idea of opportunity recognition is really important. And it's a theme that we've hit on, um, you know, a lot of times over the few years that we've been doing this. Um, and, and Paul mentioned it as, you know, something that's really important. And you asked him some great questions as usual, Bela. But, you know, he talked about his idea of what the opportunity recognition process looks like. And, you know, the research literature talks a lot about the importance of opportunity recognition. You and I both know it from our experiences. But do you think there's one best method of opportunity recognition or are there some different ways to recognize opportunities um, that entrepreneurs can take? Oh, Mike, if I knew the answer to that question, I could write a book and make a lot of money. Uh, I, I, I'll tell you what way I've tried to get students to do this is uh, I've done a couple exercises in my various entrepreneurship courses where like one of them is I, I, I would have them go to the grocery store and I would just have them observe for like 45 minutes and, 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 you know, observe the deli counter or ob observe, uh, you know, checkout or observe parking lot or observe the, you know, specific, not just sort of sit there and daydream, but, you know, Look at how the shopping cart thing works. Uh, and then from that observation, draw some conclusions and, uh, and see where the friction points are. Where, where are the things that are, are not working well? And now can I come up with some proposed solutions to solve those problems? So it's, it's, I've always looked at it as sort of, maybe because I'm an engineer, sort, sort of very methodically, like observe, you know, interview people, talk to them, what are the challenges, gather your data, and then sort of get together with, as a group, if, if three or four of you do this and compare notes, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of things that are, are well understood that this is a good, 
you know, brainstorming session, and then you can kind of combine ideas from various different people and, and, and come forth with a, something that's even better than if you designed it by yourself. But that's, that's sort of how I, how I think about it. How about you, Mike? Yeah, no, I, you know, I think it's a process and like any process, there's different ways to do it. And, um, you know, I've noticed even the process that people go through here in Germany is different than in, in the U S that means different things. And it's just fascinating. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're right. If we knew the one answer to this, we would write a book or whatever, but, um, but I do think that keeping your eyes open, networking, um, you know, the, trying to learn things about how what's going on in the world are really important. And then I think the other thing is, you know, maybe the one constant is, is that things change. And if you think you know where some pain points are or you like go into the grocery store, if you look in 2023, how people are at the checkout or at the deli counter in 2025, there's going to be some changes more than likely, right? Maybe in how you pay, maybe in what the technology that's used is, maybe in what products or services are being offered, maybe in the way that the employee interacts with the customer, these things change. So the one thing about opportunity recognition is just because you saw what an opportunity looked like a year ago or two years ago, doesn't mean it's going to look the same way right now. And you have to always be reassessing and reevaluating opportunities yeah. in the area in which you know. Yep. So that's the only kind of constant thing that I know is that, yeah, it changes. It's a, it's yeah. a, and it's really easy to be too early, you know, yep. to recognize an opportunity and your solution is too early. Yep. But I don't know. I, I did love his <coughs> emphasis on this. Okay. You try something, you fail, you learn from it and you try again. Right. And he grew, he's grown his whole life that way. And, right. you know, again, he's been in all these different industries, right. He hasn't been, you know, we, I think more of the people that you and I know have been maybe in one or two industries right? Where he's really been in a lot of different industries. I mean, you've been in three or four different industries yourself, I guess, but not to the extent that, that Paul was, right? You use yeah. your kind of expertise and you leverage that in more vertical markets, but there's nothing wrong with the way he did it, but that's how he grew. And he grew with networking and he grew by meeting people and talking with people. And I think that's pretty good advice for entrepreneurs is, you know, this idea of try, fail, learn, try again, you're going to fail, right? You're going to make right. some, you know, make some mistakes and it's okay. I mean, you know, hopefully it's not, these aren't mistakes that you can't recover from, but you learn from them and you, you, you take it and you try it again. I mean, you and I have spent our lives doing that, right? It's like, that's right. That's right. Exactly. No, you never yeah. hit it on the first time. Well, I certainly don't hit it on the first swing. No, never. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Should we wrap this one up, Mike? Let's, what do you think? Let's do it. So listeners, right. thanks again for listening to another interesting interview and Bela, thanks as usual for the great questions. Uh, listeners, thanks for joining us today. We hope you found this episode as always interesting and thought provoking. If you have questions about what we discussed today, please feel free to get in touch with us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Hey, and please do follow the podcast uh, on your favorite podcasting application. Uh, so until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you soon. Thanks, Bela. And from over here in Münster, Germany, we'll talk with you next time.